Truly my, full, my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down, this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together, they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. And you reward everyone according to what they have done. How many of you, when you were children, uh, said little prayers around dinner time, either before or after? I think not as many hands are going up as I think we did. Our family certainly did, and we have now gotten into the habit at our home to say what I used to say when I was a kid, um, Lord, bless this food for Jesus' sake, amen, and at the end of dinner, Lord, we thank you for this food. Um, what prayers did you say? God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. That was the one that I was looking for, and I knew that somebody had prayed that around the dinner table. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. I'll come back to that. We're in a series of messages right now, moving through the 10 Psalms of Psalm 60 through 69. And we started, of course, with Psalm 60. And in that Psalm, we saw David in crisis. He cries out to God in desperation, but he ends that Psalm with a note of confidence and trust. Last week, we were in Psalm 61. And in that Psalm, we saw David in crisis. He cries out to God in desperation, but he ends the psalm with a note of confidence and trust. Today we're in Psalm 62, and here we see David again confronted with painful circumstances, but this psalm is different. He does not cry out to God in desperation. In fact, he does not cry out to God at all. He doesn't need to because he's not desperate. If his circumstances are a crisis, he certainly, certainly does not treat them as such. The whole psalm is an expression of solid trust. And David here is about as confident as you'll see him anywhere in the psalms. If you're in painful circumstances, you need the comfort that you find in the psalms. This is one of the psalms that you would go to as you read the other psalms, you recognize the weakness, and as we've said, the desperation of David, and that encourages us to know that David felt sometimes what we feel. 
In other psalms, we see straight-out, unqualified praise to God. But in very few do we see both together. David in pain, yet with no note of crying out, but instead with a straight-out declaration of God's goodness. Psalm 46 is one. Psalm 62 is another. David is not afraid. David is not weak. This is David at his very best. So we're encouraged to know not only that David has felt what we have felt, but also that the God to whom David always ran to and the God in, who, in whose love and faithfulness and power David expresses such unqualified confidence, this is the very same God, the very same God who is closer to you than air, whose love for you is no less than it ever was for David. When reading my Bible the other night with my daughter, Renee, I was reading about Abraham. And later, as I prayed, it struck me suddenly that you, God, have had actual conversations with Abraham. You've had voice-to-voice interactions with him, with Abraham. We think it's so cool when we hear that somebody has actually talked to an idolized athlete or a movie star or some other celebrity of some kind. We think they're so lucky that they had a chance to meet this person, that this person maybe got their picture taken with them. This morning, I was talking to someone who has talked with Abraham and with Noah and with Moses. How cool is that? Or better, to phrase it the other way, the God whom Abraham and whom Moses and whom David knew and talked with is the same God whom I know and whom many of you know and talk to. David's God is our God, and he has not changed one whit over the centuries, over thousands of years. And the God of whom David speaks in such glowing terms is the God that we've already addressed personally in prayer, in his song. And Psalm 62's God is right here, right now. And how cool is that? There are two halves to this psalm that parallel each other. The first half of the psalm has three parts. Verses 1 and 2 are David's expression of trust. Verses 3 and 4, that what appears trustworthy is not. Some of those who appear to be David's friends are his enemies, plotting his destruction. And in verses 5, 6, and 7, David again expresses his trust almost verbatim. Despite his enemies, David's trust in God is unshaken. The second half also has three parts. Verse 8, this time David calls his people to put their trust in God as he does. Verses 9 and 10, what appears trustworthy, people or wealth, will fail if one puts their full weight on them. And in verses uh, 11 and the first part of verse 12, David tells them why they should trust God. He's told them to trust, put your trust in the Lord. Don't trust these things. They'll fail. And here's why. You should put your trust in the, in the Lord. Psalm 62 is a great song in its own right. David is a genius as a poet, and he shows it here. Um, 
through his constant repetition of words especially to get a point across. I, I preach and study from the English Standard Version, by the way, which is a wonderful sort of literal transition. And so repetition, here we go. Verses 1 and 2, my soul waits. Salvation is mentioned two times. Rock, fortress, I shall not be shaken. Verses 5, 6, and 7, my soul waits. Salvation, two times. Rock, fortress, I shall not be shaken. And even within those two paragraphs, verse 1, for God alone, verse 2, he only. And then again, paralleled in verses 5, 6, and 7. Verse 8, trust in him. Verse 10, put no trust in extortion. Verses 2, 6, and 7, he is my rock. Verse 9, they are lighter than breath. So contrast. Verse 5, my hope is from him. Verse 10, put no hope in robbery. Verse 8, pour out your heart to him. Verse 10, set not your heart on riches. Verse 7, my refuge is God. Verse 8, God is a refuge for us. And all the way through, David is driving home trust. Trust in God. Make sure you know that the one you're putting your trust is is a rock and a fortress and a refuge. And these other things are not. He starts with verse 1. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. The New International Version, which we've just had read, translate it, my soul finds rest in God alone. And when I hear or have heard in the past that verse, I've tended to think of it as the kind of verse that one would quietly meditate on in a serene, quiet place, an intimate prayer retreat, or alone in your room with your Bible in one hand and a cup of coffee in the other, and just meditate on the idea that my soul finds rest in God alone. This is not what David is thinking. In this psalm, the word silence is a better translation. It's not serene tranquility of the heart. It's standing on, on the sidelines of being quiet while God goes and wins the victory for you. The same thing is true in Psalm 46, which has a lot in common with this psalm. And there we read, be still and know that I am God. And there, too, the context is the context of violence and destruction. And there, too, the psalmist writes that God is our refuge and our strength. I'm so glad the choir sang. Uh, I don't know if you caught it or not, but be still and know in the context of all of the hard things that are going on in you and around you. In the context of Psalm 46, be still means... Stop struggling, quit fighting, stop your striving, settle down, and let God do it. When Jesus calmed the storm, he said, peace, be still. When the Israelites left Egypt under Moses, they arrived at the Red Sea only to find themselves hemmed in by the Red Sea on one side and the Egyptian army behind them, and they panicked. They said, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out into the desert to die? And Moses said, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. 
So David, my soul finds rest in God alone. He waits in silence. My soul is still in the midst of this trouble that I'm in because I'm putting my trust in God and putting it in God alone. And you know that this stillness, the silence of the heart is so difficult. In painful times, our emotions are as a whirlwind, our thoughts are racing, our fears are aroused. What should we do? I'm afraid. I'm dying here. David says, wait in silence. Be still. Do not fear. Why can David say this to us and to his own people? Because even though he is under attack, yet God is his rock, his salvation, and his fortress. David has friends who are, in fact, enemies. Many of us have friends on Facebook who, truth be told, we don't have any relationship with. I mean, I certainly do. They're not my friends in any meaningful sense of the word. Verses 3 and 4, David has friends who not only are really not his friends, but who are actually enemies. They're actively and consciously and intentionally seeking to bring about his destruction, to topple him from the place of power and position that he as king is in. Behind a mask of blessing, they curse. Behind a mask of trustworthiness, they delight in falsehood. Their intent is to thrust David down. David already feels like a weak fence, almost ready to go. And they're attacked, they're just ready to push it over. And David says, why are you doing this? But he knows that he is in grave danger from the people around him. One more push from these enemies, and he really could come down. You may have seen pictures, um, or experienced it even, of, of a wall being constructed. Big brick wall like this, and you've seen it come down. The braces have given way. Ever seen a picture of that? David says, I'm, I'm at the breaking point. I'm going to go. Why are you attacking? Why are you giving me this hard time, why are you cursing me? Why are you coming against me, ready to fall over? But again, verses 5, 6, and 7, David says a second time, but I trust myself to God who is my rock and my salvation and my fortress and my refuge. They are against me, but try as they might, I will not be shaken. Yes, I am weak, but they simply cannot thrust me down if God is for me. And as he says this of himself, he also says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Not just for me, says David, for us. It's not to deny our pain or our struggle. It's not to make you feel better. Booze can do that. It's to look at God to feel him take your hand and hear him say, don't worry, I've got this one. What's your struggle today? Most, if not all of us, have one. What is it you're worried about? What is it you don't want to carry with you into tomorrow? God is a fortress. He's a refuge. You don't run to him to escape. 
You run to him to be safe. You run to him that you might be saved and not destroyed. Trust in him. Because ultimately, what are these enemies? They're meaningless. Put them on a scale with air on one side and these enemies on the other, and the enemies will go up. They're lighter than air. They're fleeting. They're meaningless. At a conference some years ago, um, the speaker was talking to us about the reality of facing criticism, which we all do at some point, and he gave advice that I thought was brilliant. He said, don't count your critics. Weigh them. Don't count your critics. Weigh them. There are certain people in my life whose criticism I take seriously because these are people whose thoughts carry more weight with me than others. There are others whose criticism of me, for a number of reasons, doesn't matter to me at all. In high school, if Doug, true story, real name, if Doug said I was a jerk, he was a bully in a higher grade, and I wouldn't care. If Matthew said I was a jerk, he was my best friend, and I would care. If a dozen people are routinely critical in general, and whom I knew from years of experience, just plain didn't like me, said it was a terrible pastor, I would not assign much weight to their criticism. But if even one person for whom I had great respect, a person who knew me, who understood pastoring and preaching, and said, Ken, the fact is that you really are a terrible pastor. You're very ineffective these days. I would take that very seriously. And his criticism would carry much more weight with me than a dozen others. So we don't count our crit critics. We weigh them. David says, put your enemies, all of them, on a scale. Take one glance at God, and you will see that they are less than nothing. And certainly don't become like them, David says, relying on the things that they rely on, money and wealth. Those who value treasure will stoop at nothing, even deposing the king to gain influence for themselves, to get it. I mean, what a weak and useless basis for security that is. Wealth and the gaining of power for oneself. And here David then comes to the crux of the matter, the thing to which the whole psalm is built toward. What makes God such a solid rock? What makes him a secure refuge? What makes him a sure salvation? How do we know that we will not fall? How do we know that we can be so sure of him? Verse 11. One thing God has spoken. Two things have I heard. And by the way, this kind of one, two repetition is a device the Hebrews poets often use to emphasize the point. Much like in Proverbs, you'll see there are three things the Lord hates for that, give him a lot of grief or whatever the phrase would be. Chapter 30, under three things, the earth trembles, under four, it cannot bear up, and so on. Here you have one and two. Psalm 62, one thing God has spoken, two things I have heard, that power belongs to God, 
And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. What makes God the safe refuge, a fortress, a rock, and a salvation that he is? It's the reality that he is strong and he is loving. God is great. God is good. Psalm 46, this close companion to Psalm 62, affirms this very same thing at the beginning and the end of Psalm 46 in kind of a reverse parallel. It says, God is a refuge and strength in ever-present help in time of trouble. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God is a strong refuge, and God is present. He is a refuge, a strength, a fortress, and he is a loving, ever-present help in a time of trouble. There's not a second of our lives in which he is not present. I learned something this week that um, we were talking about division of time. Our kids found out what a nanosecond was and so on. I don't know if anyone knows this. I didn't know that before. There's something that is called a femtosecond. And it is like, I don't even know, it's like a billionth of a nanosecond. Um, I forget what it is. A, A femtosecond is to like a million years, I'm making this up, but it's something like that. A femtosecond is like to a million years what a foot is to like distance from here to you know, the end of the solar system or something like that. A femtosecond. There has not been a femtosecond of your life in which God is not and has been present. It's a hard truth sometimes. Is he really? Really? Is he really powerful and loving both? If he loved me, he must not be powerful or this wouldn't be happening. If he's powerful, he must not love me to let this happen to me when he could have done something about it. But he is both loving and he is strong, so strong that he can, in fact, take your circumstances, whatever they are, and work them for good. Often we're looking at the tapestry from the back, only we forget it's the back and we wonder what a mess God is making of this work that he's on. When your enemies attack you, sometimes they are people, people who criticize you with meanness, who gossip, who try to bring you down from your position. And you have enemies, and what do you trust? When your fears arise, when your doubts grow strong, when the waves rush in, in what do you trust? Jerry Bridges, author of The Pursuit of Holiness, a book that some of you will know, he says, trust is not a passive state of mind. It is a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold of the promises of God and cling to them despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. Truth is not a passive state of mind. Be still. It's all good. It is a vigorous act of the soul in which we choose. We almost make ourselves stop and sit down and put down our weapons and let God step in. Trust is hard work. God is a refuge and a fortress. If I am criticized, 
I remind myself it's what God feels towards me that matters above all. If I am gossiped about, I do not angrily rise to do battle, but I trust in God's vindication. If my position is unjustly threatened, I believe that in any circumstance, God moves me to where he wants me. When I am afraid, he is my peace. When I have doubts, I remind myself that he is truth. When waves crash in, he shelters me. There's nothing in heaven and earth that can set itself against me and win. Because God won't let it. And to reverse Marlon Brando's quote in The Godfather, God, my father, says, you mess with my family, you mess with me. God comes to the aid of those who belong to him. It might not look the way we think it should look, but he is, in fact, a rock and a refuge, a solid rock and a fortress, and he is our salvation. When you go from here, talk for 20 minutes. When you go from here, take this one thing with you. God is great. And God is good. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, I'm not sure there's any better prayer that we could ever pray. Any better words of praise that we could ever offer or even sing. But the simple declaration... And understanding that you are good and that you, O oh Lord, are great. When you take us to the cross and lead us to the cross, that is the very reality that we see. You are good, profoundly good. You gave your very son, for crying out loud, to die in our place. And you are great because with that simple death, in his resurrection, you took on this whole issue of sin, global, historical, all the spiritual world, and you defeated it, took care of it, cleansed us, which is as great a work as I can think of. Thank you that you're great and that you are good, and will you please remind us of that often and just maybe this week? because that's the one thing that we need to know about you above all else. We praise you for that truth. In the name of Jesus, who is the most clear and supreme demonstration of your greatness and goodness, in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to close this morning. Somebody has to let me know what the hymn number is. I don't have it with me up here. 32. Thank you. This expression of uh, trust in God, our help in ages past, and our eternal home. Past, eternal, present, our rock, our protection. Oh God, our help in ages past. Let's stand and sing this last song together.
for years to come. Our shelter from the stormy blast and our May the reality of God's goodness and his greatness be very clear to you by experience in the week to come. Some of you need to hear it more than others, depending on what you're facing. But God is great and God is good. Take that truth with you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.